It's time for Backstage Chats with Women in Music, where the stories and voices of female music makers inspire women like you to be dreamers, to be rule breakers, and to unleash your inner rock star. Podcasting from Austin, Texas, the live music capital of the world, here's your host, Thea Wood. Welcome to Backstage Chats with Women in Music. I'm your host, Thea Wood. This episode's special guest spent over four decades working with notable acts like the Bare Naked Ladies, Sheila E., David Byrne, and most notably, his royal badness, Prince. Now she's a PhD teaching audio engineering and production at Berkeley College of Music, where she's also leading research on psychoacoustics and music cognition. Susan Rogers, welcome to the show. Hello, Thea. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here, and I'm eager to take your questions, and I hope that I can give you information you can use. I have no doubt about that, and I know our audience will have no doubt about that as we start jumping into all these questions that we have for you, because there is such a plethora of information regarding your experience and work, and I think maybe the easiest way to start off would be with our shakedown questions, which we ask of all of our special guests. Are we ready for the shakedown? I am so ready. Who was your first concert? It was the band Yes. (laughs) Well, and you know, it's funny because I thought you would have said a band that was more uh, soul or funk. Yeah, that's what I would have liked to have had happen. Uh, In my personal history, without going into too much detail, I uh, got married at 17. And the person I was married to was, was, was jealous of my relationship with music. And he only quote unquote approved certain artists. And um, I was I was just a teenager and uh, he was kind of the lord and master. He was a few years older than I. He was not a sweetheart. He, anyway, uh, it just so happened that that was a band that was on his approved list. And I just wanted to see any show. And so really that was my first one. Uh, all, all the good stuff was to follow. Well, what was the first album you bought with your own money? I bought a lot of singles, but uh, I, uh, I, I believe the first album I bought was Crosby, Stills & Nash, and it was the uh, Deja Vu album. And that's uh, kind of coincidental, maybe, because wasn't the first recording uh, audio studio that you worked for owned by Graham Nash and David Crosby? Yes, I did end up working with them. Uh, so... Uh, it, again, it, it, it uh, wasn't, had a fairly broad musical taste. Primarily the music I liked was the soul music, but uh, I was into the, the rock scene as well. And I, I liked Led Zeppelin very, very much and the Rolling Stones. And uh, I checked out Crosby, Stills and Nash when they were at the height of what they did. I loved Buffalo Springfield. So I think that was the first album I remember buying. Prior to that, I bought a lot of singles. I loved having singles. Well, singles were a big thing, especially the 45s. Yes, 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 yes. I still remember and wish I still had Booker T and the MGs and some of those singles that I bought. I really, really loved those. Well, which artist or band is in heavy rotation right now on your playlist? Well, I have to say uh, right now I've been listening to Bob Dylan's Theme Time Radio Hour. So it's no one single band, but ever since I discovered Bob Dylan's Theme Time Radio Hour, I have enjoyed it more than just about anything. And that's introducing me to a lot of records that have been around for a long time, but 
that I didn't know personally and want to get to know more like Clarence Gatemouth Brown and some of these other artists that were on the Stax label. I just recently uploaded into my computer a box set from school called, it's right, sitting right over here, it's called The Big Box of New Orleans, uh, Doctors, Professors, Kings and Queens. And it's got, you know, the wild chapatulas and just all that cool stuff that came out of New Orleans. I have lately been um, a real sponge for the early, the roots music of R&B and soul, uh, regional roots music of R&B and soul. Well, which woman has had the most influence on your career? This is going to sound a little bit funny, but I think it was the first time I saw Peggy McCreary's name on the back of an album cover uh, uh, on the credits. It kind of lit me up because I was living in Hollywood. She was working at Sunset Sound, which was right up the street. I know I had read Leslie Ann Jones's name before, but Leslie was up in San Francisco. And this just uh, was the name of someone who was working with Prince and with other artists who I thought were incredible and was close to me. So she had a big influence because it felt within reach. Here is someone who's actually just a couple of miles up the street, if even less. And, and that inspired me. And she and I ended up working together. Wow. Well, that's really, that's a nice story. I like to hear that. Uh, if you could have dinner with any woman, dead or alive, who would she be? This might also sound a little bit out of left field because there are so many great women scientists. But I'm interested in the psychology of... Shirley Temple. Shirley Temple. Shirley Temple. I'm very interested in how you go from being the biggest star in the United States and one of the world's biggest stars as a child and grow up to lead what we would consider a pretty normal, well-balanced life. A lot of child stars, you can think of Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney and many others, went off the rails. This little girl put up with the greatest pressure that any of our adults, male or female, have had to endure as a, as a solo star, a solo artist, grew up, left the business, got married, became an ambassador. How do you do that? And having worked in the entertainment industry, I'm curious about that. So. I would really like to hear more about Shirley Temple. Well, now you've got me wanting to know more. <laughs> how did she do that? And how did that little girl transition and into a normal life and withstand that pressure? That's a rare accomplishment. Very few people have done what that, that little girl and then woman did. I'm curious about that. I, that, I, that's a very interesting story, and I agree. Uh, last question, what is one life goal you'd like to accomplish before climbing that golden stairway to heaven? I've got, uh, my list is hundreds long, but if I'm going to go right to that happy zone, uh, I'm going to say I really want to own a pig. I want a pig very badly. Um, I want other animals too, but the pig is, of all the reputedly intelligent other species out there. It's the only one we use for food. I think that is um, wrong. 
I think it's immoral. And uh, I would like to contribute to an understanding of the consciousness and the intellect uh, of a pig. And I'd like to have one just because they look pretty cute. And uh, I want to have one when I retire and maybe even more than one. And I'd, I'd like to do a little bit of research and perhaps make a contribution to the field among their cognitive capacities. Well, just so you know, by being on this show and bringing that up, hopefully that message has already started coming around with our viewers. It matters so much to me. Think about it. Think about an, a brain that is considered to be more intelligent than dogs. We know dogs are pretty smart. Think about that smart brain being used for food. It, it's not right. It's not right. We shouldn't be doing it. I've been a vegetarian for over 25 years now, so I don't eat animals anyway, but uh, that, that strikes me as particularly cruel. And I, I think we humans are going to regret that someday. So I'd like to be part of the, joining the work of the great people who will help turn that around. We're going to take a quick break and continue our chat after this message. Backstage Chats Foundation would like to thank the Inn at Newport Ranch for supporting our mission to amplify the voices and careers of women in music. Located on the scenic ocean front of Mendocino County, California, the Inn at Newport Ranch was voted one of the 20 best hotels in the world by Andrew Harper's Hideaway Report. As a guest, you'll enjoy hiking and guided ATV tours through 2,000 acres of redwoods, horseback riding along 20 miles of world-class trails, trips to local wineries, and even whale watching. It's a nature lover's paradise for everything from executive retreats to small weddings. Learn more by visiting the inn at newportranch.com. Now, back to the chat. What, how did you meet Prince? What was, what was it like that day that you met Prince face-to-face? Well, I can tell you about two days. I can tell you about the day I first actually encountered him face to face, although we didn't meet and have a conversation then. And then a short time afterward, when we finally went, I was hired by him and we had our first conversation. So the first time I actually ever saw him up close, and like you, I was a Prince fan from his earliest days. I remember hearing Soft and Wet on the radio where I lived in Los Angeles and just instantly thinking this guy's onto something. So I had had his records. I had seen him perform live on the Dirty Mind tour and the 1999 tour. Um, it was a, a dream come true to go to work for him. So this first encounter was took place on a summer day. I was hired in the summer and we were in the driveway of his home on Kiowa Trail and I and some of the crew members were unloading this new console off the back of the truck and some new equipment to get into the house. And I'd been working for hours. I needed to use the restroom. So I asked Sandy Scipioni, who was Prince's um, his personal assistant, I said, uh, can I use the restroom in the house? And she said, yeah. And she pointed me toward the front door. So I go up to the front door. I open the front door. And this tiny little person wearing a shower cap and a towel goes flying past me. Just so when you opened his front door, there was a landing there for the stairs. A half set of stairs went down into his living room and kitchen. The other half set of stairs went up to some of the bedrooms. And he was transitioning from a bathroom to a bedroom, I guess. And he just went flying past me, wrapped in a towel. And as soon as I saw it, I just shut the door as fast as possible. And I remember thinking, oh, I hope he didn't see me. I hope he didn't see me. Because... I didn't want him to think, you know, fire her immediately. She was sitting in the towel. <laughs> My hair in a shower cap. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, please, 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 please. I hope he didn't see me. I hope he didn't see my face. 
Well, apparently, I don't know whether he did or didn't, I don't know, but our first actual encounter took place like a week or so later because he was famously taciturn and reticent and shy. He's not going to go seeking out new people if he doesn't have to. So he was staying upstairs in the house while I was downstairs in the home studio basement by myself, pulling out the old console, installing the new one, doing some repairs on the tape machine, and just a, he left me a little list of things that needed, needed repairing. So I spent about a week all day and in, well into the night doing those repairs, still never meeting him. Finally, when I had everything ready to go, I called Sandy and I said, Sandy, now what? You know, everything's ready to go. She says, I'll call him and let him know. He takes the phone call and a few minutes later, I hear him coming down the stairs to meet me. So I stepped into the stairwell and uh, he didn't even introduce himself. He just immediately started with questions. Is what's happening with this? What's happening with that? What's happening with the other thing? And I answered the questions and then he said, okay, well, you know, come back tomorrow. We'll, we'll start. He gave me a start time and he turned around to leave and something about that just did not feel right. It didn't feel right because I had left everyone I'd ever known. I had left California and a good job to move 2,300 miles away and go to work for him. And there wasn't even an introduction. So something about it just felt wrong. And a little voice inside me said, don't let it start like this. So he turned around to walk up the stairs and I stopped him. I said, excuse me, Prince. He stopped and turned around and I just looked him dead in the eye to make sure, you know, this is what this is, right? And I said, I'm Susan Rogers. And I stuck out my hand to shake his hand. I wanted an acknowledgement that as human beings, we're equal, as everything else, we're not. Um, you're my boss, I'm your employee. This is a social contract that we are both agreeing to. You can fire me at any time, I can quit at any time. But all that aside, in this moment, you're Prince Rogers Nelson and I'm Susan Rogers and we're two people and there are going to be moments of equality here. And so I, I just, I, I, you know, reverse engineered what I was thinking after. So I stuck out my hand and he got this look on his face, like, you know, he was going to laugh <laughs> at the formality of it all. And he stuck out his hand and we, we shook hands and kind of did a little head bow kind of thing. And he said, I'm Prince. Okay, good. Now I'm satisfied. Now we can begin. I think sometimes people and just get into a mode and and forget to stop and say, wait a minute, what, what would be, you know, a, the etiquette or the right way to introduce myself right now or step into this person who I don't know. And kudos for you for actually having the bravery to stop and say, wait a minute, let's take this time out to do a real introduction. Because I know a lot of young women would feel extremely intimidated and say, okay, well, we'll just let it go and keep moving forward. I know. It's hard to know when to, it's hard to know when to trust our gut. I think uh, if we're healthy, let's say mentally and emotionally healthy, we should trust it more often. I read Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, and I love his work. He's the Nobel laureate who uh, uh, wrote a book some years ago about our cognitive processes, you know, that, that cognitive, rational thinking brain, and then that gut instinct. When I look back on pivotal moments in my life, my gut instinct has served me well. And I don't trust it often enough. I think a lot of women are well in tune with theirs. And when your gut instinct tells you, no, this isn't right, we have to learn to shift gears 
and, and, and obey that gut. When it says, no, this isn't happening, uh, our logical mind has to believe us. And our logical mind needs to say, yeah, you're right. Let's deal with it now. Mm-hmm. And did you, as an audio engineer, and being especially at that time, one of the very, very few female audio engineers on the planet at that point, was that kind of feeling um, reinforced when you worked with people like Prince or was that something that you kind of had to develop on your own and say, okay, I need to go more with this gut instinct? Well, a little of both, Uh, you know, having, making mistakes and analyzing it afterward and realizing what went wrong, what should I have done there? And then it's just as important to analyze what went right. Uh, and what what happened that allowed that to go well and what happened that caused that to go off the rails it's very important for all of us to accept <laughs> we are learning throughout our lives which means we simply will not be capable especially in our early 20s of knowing what to do all the time you have to be willing to take that risk and make that mistake and to not consider that, well, I'm ruined now because I made a mistake. I'm still making mistakes and I'm 62 now. I'm still making mistakes um, and getting better and better. I'm going to be smart as hell when I'm 100 years old. <laughs> I credit the, the, the men in my life who were good to me and trusted me and encouraged me for helping me to recognize that I was their equal. I will never stop being grateful to the men like Prince and like Bare Naked Ladies and like Tommy Jordan and Greg Kirsten of Gagita and like the folks who hired me, Graham Nash and all the rest, who saw me as their equal, as their peer, and handed me responsibilities and um, and said, "You got this. You got this." <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that help that helps you feel good about yourself when when good people trust you. And in Prince's case, he really did trust you because he he did move you from, like we said, being an audio tech up into being an actual engineer for instances, his major album, which was Purple Rain. I mean, in my opinion, they're all major. He also worked with uh, Wendy and Lisa and had really surrounded himself with a lot of women. What was your take on that and how the working dynamic panned out. I had, I had known uh, before going to work for him that he liked working with women. It was obvious because he had Wendy and Lisa in his band and he worked with Peggy McCreary at Sunset Sound. So I, I felt pretty confident going in that my gender would be more of an asset than a problem. And I was right about that. He uh, liked working with women for our uh, capacity to not challenge him for dominance or directly compete with him. And he liked women. He liked our company. He liked women, uh, as, a, as a lot of men do. And he liked being uh, with us. The other thing that was an advantage is that uh, Prince had a soft spot in his heart for outsiders. And um, a woman trying to be successful as an engineer would have these prejudices stacked against her. Prince liked working outsiders, soft spot in his heart for them. And you don't get much more outsider-y than being a woman who's a recording engineer. So he would always give us, the outsiders, a shot 
However, that train made hay, so it's not like he's going to give us a shot if we can't carry our weight. I needed to be as competent as anyone else he would have had. Uh, it took me a little minute to convince him that I was, but uh, eventually over time, he gave me more and more responsibility. It all worked out. And now just on a kind of a side note from that, because I know that you did a lot of work for him. I think there was a reference to where when his team got together to work with him, it was like being deployed, uh, like a soldier going off <laughs> on, on a mission. In doing that, though, there, there are personal times, obviously. It's not just all work. And somebody told me something about a story you have that includes prints and apple pie. Yes. <laughs> Would you like to share that with us? I would love to. I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, we were talking earlier about your gut instinct and your head and how trusting that gut instinct sometimes does work out. So what happened was we were shooting the Purple Rain movie. I say we because I was part of his staff, so I was there, but he didn't need me for much. Uh, this was around November. It was cold and, and dark, and uh, I had been working really hard because I had joined him in August, and I'd been working really hard to be everything that he needed from me. And this was a cold winter night when I had the night off. He didn't need me. We weren't in the studio because he was on the movie set. He was in South Minneapolis and he was shooting one of the scenes that involved the kid, his character in the Purple Rain movie, and uh, he was on set. So I'm at home and I, I'm thinking, uh, I, I feel useless. I should be helping. I should be doing something. I should be contributing. What can I do? And somehow I got the notion that the answer to that question was, you can make him a pie. Now, I knew that he had a sweet tooth from what he liked to eat. So I thought, yeah, that's what I'll do. I didn't even question myself. I'll make him a pie. And I went to the grocery store and I got the ingredients and I, I uh, came home and I like to bake. So I put together everything and I rolled out the dough and I did the apples and the spices and put it in there and I baked the pie. And then the pie came out of the oven and I wrapped it up and I get in the car and I go down to where they were shooting, down to the location not far away. And I am approaching the security guard with this pie, and I ask, where's Prince's trailer? And the guy points, it's right over there. So I go walking up to Prince's trailer, and just as I'm walking up to his trailer, I realize, huh, <laughs> I wonder how this is going to look. It had never occurred to me. And then I thought, no, no, I'm going for it. I'm going for it. This isn't weird at all. This is great. <laughs> so with all the confidence in the world, I walked up to the trailer and knocked on the door, and he opens it. And he says, yes. And I said, Prince, I made you a pie. <laughs> As if, you know, that was just like, here's what you're going to need. And he looked at me and he said, a pie? And I said, yeah, pie. And I handed it to him. And he's, he's kind of thunderstruck, but he takes the pie. He says, one second. You know, and he's, he's smiling. You know, he wants to laugh. He sets the pie down. He says, hang on a second. And he sets it down in his trailer and he comes back and he's got a little box of Tic Tacs, those little mints. And he's got the Tic Tacs and I know what this exchange is all about. So I put my hand out and he taps a few Tic Tacs into my hand and I say, thank you. And we do that ceremonial bow again. Like, thank you. Very nice. We have exchanged the gifts. <laughs> but the subtext there is, put me to work. Put me to work. I've got energy. <laughs> Don't leave me sitting at home doing nothing. Uh, there are things I can be doing. And uh, that was one of the pivotal moments in our relationship because he did put me 
more to work after that. He realized she wants to help. She wants to contribute. Uh, give her something to do. Uh, and, and again, gut instinct served me well. Even though it might have seemed silly, if I had typed that out on a piece of paper, it would have been, what are you thinking? But it, it was the right gesture. And speaking of pivotal moments, Prince died on April 21st, 2016. Do you remember where you were and what you were doing when you found out? Yes, it was um, a very unfortunate Timing. I was actually in my laboratory on campus. I had a sabbatical that semester. And for the first time since I had left the music business, I finally had time to where I wasn't in grad school and I wasn't teaching and I could just collect data. So I had a research project going on and I was collecting data from a participant in the lab when my phone just lit up with text messages. The media relations office at Berkeley were getting a lot of requests for me to talk to the media. So uh, everything changed from that moment on. I, I responded to those requests and, um, and didn't really even have time to think about it or process it. I, I spoke quickly <clears throat> and briefly with Wendy and Lisa. We were all just thunderstruck and um, a few days, a couple of days after he passed away, about a dozen of us had a conference call and that included the Revolution and Alan Leeds and Sheila E and Gilbert Davison. We had a concert call, a, a conference call about what to do. The band at that time were unwilling to the media. They just, they didn't have words. And I said that I would. Um, it was, I was a safe choice because I couldn't answer questions about Prince personally, necessarily. I couldn't answer questions about Prince more recently. I can just say he was a good man, essentially, and this is the man I knew, and he made an indelible contribution to music. So I did, and, um, and then we all got together in Minneapolis a few days later, and we had kind of a wake for him where we all got up and shared memories about him. When I say we all, there were about 40 of us who gathered at the Lowe's Hotel right across the street from First Avenue, and we all took turns sharing Prince memories. And that was a really wonderful evening, really wonderful. Was there for you a particular memory or experience with Prince that you would like to share with our audience that really speaks to who he was as a human being? Oh, there were so many. You know, he revealed himself in his day-to-day -day actions and his responses to things. So I guess the sum total of his life would describe who he was. Let me give you a big picture and then I, I can give you just one anecdote. Big picture. He was highly intelligent. He was sensitive. When I was working with him at one point, his mother came over, she was moving and she had a cardboard box that had things from his childhood and she left them at the house. And he saw me looking at the box and he said, you can look through it if you want. So I did. And inside this box were his childhood report cards, things from school. And I read what his teachers said about him and they described the guy I knew, respectful of authority, likable, intelligent, sensitive, kind to others, but really reticent and taciturn, someone who just did not talk a lot. Uh, that was the guy that I knew. He did not use profanity. He did not uh, have 
outrageous temper tantrums. The man I knew was, would n was not impulsive. He would not fire people on a whim. He would say things like uh, if he was pondering a business decision, he'd only talk a little bit about that in my presence. He kept things to himself, but sometimes he would use this phrase a lot. We put bread on people's tables. He took his responsibility as an employer very seriously. And remember, when I knew him, he was 25 years old. It's amazing. And, yeah, and he, he, he took those responsibilities very seriously, and he had the strongest work ethic of anyone I have ever known. Um, so, little stories. There was the time um, Prince learned from his idol, James Brown, to find his musicians on stage as a motivator for them to be a really tight band and not make mistakes. So James Brown was famous for, if his band made a mistake on stage, James Brown would have a finger, a sign, right? A hand gesture that would say how many dollars they were being fined. So Prince thought, well, that was, that's a good idea. I'll try this out. And Prince was doing that with his band and it was not working quite as well because his band was really building up some resentment. But uh, one day we were in the studio at Sunset Sound and I made a mistake. I mispatched something into the wrong hole and Prince was in a really good mood that day. And he said, that's it, Susan, that's a $50 fine. I'm going to start fining you every time you make a mistake in the studio. And he was in a good mood and I wasn't. I was exhausted. I had been stretched to the limit. And as soon as I did that mispatch and he said, $50 fine, <laughs> I I just snapped and I had my purse there and I said, fine, you have everything from me. You have my entire life. You have me at your side morning, noon, and night. I get no sleep. I have no personal life. And now you want my money too? Fine. You can have my money too. And I opened up my wallet. He was sitting in the chair. I was standing above him. I pulled out all the cash I had and I just threw it at him. And I'm saying, there, now you can have my money too. Now you have everything of mine. You have everything. And I turned on my heel and I stormed out. And of course, oh, as soon as I walked out, I thought, Huh, <laughs> what did I just do? And will there be a way to undo it? This is extremely embarrassing. Do I turn back now or do I turn back later? I should probably turn back now. So I turned around. I guess I went to the bathroom, took a moment to compose myself and turned around and came back. And I said to him, I'm sorry. That just made me really mad. He let it go. He let it go. He completely let it go. There were times when uh, he knew. Well, let, let, me, let me rephrase that. He needed you to carry a lot of weight because he was carrying a lot of weight. He needed you to work really hard. But he also knew that there were moments where you could slip, you could slip out of your, your cart could get a wobbly wheel. The wheel could slip out of the track. Let's just get back on track and just keep rolling, shall we? Um, thank you again for sharing the memory and, and saying more about him on a personal level because there are so many rumors out there about what he was like as a person and so on and so forth and I think uh we overshadow the idea that he's a human with the fact that he was this music god and there uh, there was uh, you know a lot of hero worship and a lot of other things that happened but he's a human being just like the rest of us and we need to keep that in mind anytime we're talking about anyone at any level in whether it be in music or film or any celebrity uh, related position. So thank you for doing that. I appreciate that. And that wraps up part one of our chat with Susan Rogers. 
Stay tuned for part two, where Susan discusses her work as an engineer, producer, and professor at the Berklee College of Music, where she's making great strides in uplifting the next generation of music makers. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Backstage Chats with Women in Music. Why do we love interviewing these amazing women? Because they remind us to be dreamers, to be rule breakers, and to unleash our inner rock stars. Hit the subscribe button and never miss an episode of Backstage Chats with Women in Music. This podcast is a production of the Backstage Chats Foundation, a nonprofit that is on a mission to eliminate gender disparity in the music industry by amplifying the voices and careers of women in music. You can make a difference by donating to the cause. Visit backstagechats.com and click the donate button today.